This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. She's celebrated as one of the UK's strictest head teachers, and as the government's new social mobility side, Catherine Burblesing, has adopted a similar no-nonsense approach to ensure more people improve their status. Earlier today, Catherine delivered her hotly anticipated first speech since being appointed chair of the Social Mobility Commission by Liz Truss in October, during which she laid out her radical new plan for social mobility, encouraging folk from lower income backgrounds to take smaller steps up the ladder rather than set their aspirations impossibly high. Things like, you know, entering Oxbridge. Look. You know, we imagine this idea that, oh, everyone needs to get to Oxbridge, everyone needs to be this top lawyer in the city. Um, But in fact, the reality is that we have a variety of children with a variety of different talents. Now, Catherine's comments have predictably sparked a backlash from all the usual left-wing critics with Harriet Williamson of The Independent writing... To me, this isn't about social mobility at all. It looks a lot like telling people from disadvantaged backgrounds to stop dreaming and stay in their lanes. Well, I'm delighted to say Catherine Burlesing, the woman herself, joins me now live. Catherine, you might as well respond directly to that. That's not what I thought you were doing, but it is what a lot of the critics have leapt upon today. Yes, well, I think that's because they don't really have any respect for people who do uh, a whole variety of different jobs. And it's precisely that that I think needs to change. Um, Fact is that, as I said in that clip, uh, in any school, you've got children with a whole bunch of different talents. Can you imagine saying to a child, you need to get to Oxford, but if you don't get there, well, your life is worthless. Not much point in trying after that. I mean, of course, children who want to go to Oxford ought to apply to Oxford and brilliant, please do. And that's exactly what we do with our children who are wanting to do that. But not everybody wants to become a top banker in the city or a top lawyer. And uh, as I pointed out in my speech to the audience there, I was saying, well, many of us in the audience are not top bankers. We're perfectly happy. I love being a teacher. I love being around children. I'd be miserable as a banker. And there's something wrong with our society when all we recognize as being good is someone who's gone from the bottom right up to the top in terms of income. It's not just about earning lots of money. It's about living a worthwhile life. And it's about finding a career, a job that's going to give you satisfaction and purpose so that you're a happy person. And people have a variety of talents and it's right that they should be able to do what they want to do. Um, And so, of course, I wasn't saying, I mean, I never said we shouldn't be encouraging children to go to Oxford. Of course, we should encourage children to fulfill their talents. But everyone can't go to Oxford. I mean, we all kind of realize this. 90, 95% of my kids at school are not going to be applying to Oxford or Cambridge. It doesn't mean their lives are over. (laughs) It means that they're going to live purposeful and fantastic lives uh, without uh, attending Oxford or Cambridge. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about our definition of success and and maybe actually as a society, we have to change our definition of success because 
I don't think, I mean, a vast uh, amount of the most successful people I know never went to university, by the way, in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. Like, not everybody wants to go to university. Not everybody does A-levels. People want to do a variety of different things. And the fact is, sometimes, you, you know, you want people to be as socially mobile as possible. You don't want people to be prisoners of, of the circumstances of their birth. And sometimes they want to make shorter mobilities. They don't need to do this massive long stretch so they become some, you know, big CEO and is eating in expensive restaurants in the city. I mean, some people, I mean, one of the big things I spoke about was geography. You know, if you're, you're born in Lancashire and you want to stay in Lancashire, you don't want to come down to London and make an absolute fortune and be super rich and famous. Well, that, that's great. I mean, you should be allowed to do that. And the problem we have as a society, we tend, we tend to only respect those people who end up in these top jobs that earn them lots of money. And, and that's not right. We've got things upside down because it's about living a life that's worth living. And it's fascinating, really, that I say that. And then a whole bunch of people here, you're telling people to stay in their lanes. And I think that has to do with the way they feel about people who aren't doing jobs that they really respect. And that's a problem. And, and that's what I'm kind of taking on here. Um, because if we stopped just looking at the few, because it's only the few who are going to end up perhaps at Oxford or Cambridge or perhaps in being some top banker, the many, however, are going to do a whole variety of different things. Uh, some of them not going to university, some of them going to different universities, and, and we should be celebrating their successes just as much as we would celebrate that person who ends up as a top banker. I couldn't agree more. How do you deal with the issue of kids or teenagers or young people who say to you, uh, I want to be the next Kim Kardashian, I want to be a film star, I want to be a social media influence, I want to be a TV presenter, because I get a lot in my own life. And my approach is to say, look, I think it's great to aim for that, but you also need to think about the alternatives because it doesn't happen uh, to a lot of people, that level of success. But sometimes people criticize me for that and say, oh, you're trying to dash this person's dream or you're not being supportive enough. Yeah, no, uh, you, you, you say exactly the right thing. I mean, of course, you can support them to do X, Y and Z as well, but they must uh, make sure that they are working hard at school and getting a good set of qualifications so that they have doors open to themselves. That is particularly the case if you come from a more disadvantaged background, because the fact is there is inequality in society. It is There's no doubt that uh, income, is, there is some kind of correlation between income and the, the kind of success that you will have. You know, if you, if you grow up in a richer family, you will probably have an easier time in terms of uh, choice of careers and so on later on. And so the more disadvantaged your background, the more you know it is that you really do need to work hard at school and make sure that you have some of those credentials and qualifications because people who are from um, uh, richer backgrounds can sometimes mess up in various ways and then they have a contact through their dad or their mom or whatever it is mm -hmm. and then they manage to get, get on in life. Whereas many of my kids just won't have that. So we're very much pushing 
pushing the idea that you've got to get yourself in a position where you're secure with some decent GCSE results. Um, and, and of course, life is complex. But one of the things we want to do on the commission is really look at the people who are bucking the trends. So, you know, yes, society is unequal, but how is it that some people are socially mobile despite that inequality? Because often we can confuse and conflate uh uh, inequality with social mobility. And they're not the same thing. Inequality is how rich is the richest person? How poor is the per- poorest person? What is the gap in between? And those might be really large, that gap, that gap could be large, but you might still get many people being socially mobile between the, in that gap. And, and that's what you, you need to aim for is to try and encourage as many people to be as socially mobile as possible. Now, of course, you made the speech today as the chair of the Social Mobility Commission. Now, you're a government appointment. So how does that work? Do do, do they back your speech? Is is this something uh, that that Boris Johnson and and Liz Truss are in support of? Well... I don't know. (laughs) You'll have to ask them. I mean, we're entirely independent. And so uh, we say what we want. And then I suppose they decide whether or not they like it. I have no idea what what they think of it. Um, And they're not one person. She might like it. He might not like it. I have no idea. Uh, We are independent and we have our own ideas and we push those forward um, in, in a way to hopefully have impact, not just on government, but also on families and people. Right now, we're trying to change the narrative. We're trying to uh, let people know, you know, that uh, social mobility isn't necessarily uh, in decline. It depends on the data that you're looking at, but in particular, if you're looking at occupational uh, mobility, actually it's been stable for decades. And we want to get out some good news stories and think about, as I say, who's doing well? How are they doing well? We, As we move forward over the next year, we want to look at families, for instance, the importance of families. How do they impact on people's social mobility? You know, the early years and how they support their children then. And then schooling. You know, if you get your child into a good school in comparison to a not so good school, how does that impact on the child's life in terms of their upward mobility? Well, it is really important work. I loved the speech, I have to say. That was chair of the Social Mobility Commission and, of course, Britain's strictest head teacher, Catherine Burble Singh. Welcome back. Now, the father of a 14-year-old girl who took her own life is trying to find out if abuse on social media led to his daughter's tragic death. Now, this is Mia Janine, who tragically died in June last year after she was reportedly bullied at the Jewish Free School in North London. And yesterday, a pre-inquest hearing was told that Snapchat accounts that may contain vital evidence were deleted on the instruction of teachers just five days after Mia's death. Two other social media apps that Mia is known to have used no longer exist and cannot provide any information. Now, naturally, this awful story has only fueled parents' anxieties about the harm being done to their children online and the companies behind these god-awful apps appear unwilling or unable to properly safeguard uh, their younger users. So to break this down tonight, I'm joined by the Daily Telegraph star columnist and best-selling author Celia Walden, who's written about her own fears of her daughter being exposed to the potentially devastating effects of social media. And Celia, I can only imagine that as a parent, 
you want to try and ban your daughter from these apps. But is that realistic when they operate in a world where all of their friends are on Instagram and TikTok? Well, I mean, I think that's the point that I wanted to make when I wrote about this tragic story earlier on in the week, because the last thing anyone wants to do is that awful sort of parental thing of, well, my my daughter's never going to go near, you know, because the fact is, as you say, this is this is not going away. It's 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 everywhere you look. It's it's so deeply ingrained in our society now. And uh, so no one wants to be blaming um, Mia's, you know, parents for letting her go on social media or anything like that. That is not the, but, um, uh, my point was that, and even, even, you know, the school who are, um, who, who are at the moment, we're trying to find out, you know, how much blame should be dealt to them in terms of, you know, did they notice a culture of cyberbullying, whether you can notice a culture of cyberbullying, I don't know. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of it is that it operates in the shadows. Um, and it's the, it's the media for cowards, isn't it? You know, it used to be that people just gave you a punch in the face and you would go home with a black eye. But the thing that's so particularly evil, I think, about social media is that is that it's cowards who operate in the shadows and it's um, and people feel ashamed by that bullying and, and, it, and, and don't tell their parents. And there's no way of anyone calling it out because they're not seeing it. No, it's absolutely despicable. But the issue that I have, Celia, is that these social media companies and very often, well, in virtually all cases, right, the tech giants based in San Francisco, they don't seem to give a damn. They want to protect their own backs rather than actually do the right thing because... 100%. Yeah. And the worst thing about the thing that that is just unbearable is if you ever read an interview with any tech giant or any of the Silicon Valley heads, none of them let their kids go on social media. So rather like sort of old tobacco barons, you know, who, by the way, never touch cigarettes. It's fine. Everyone else can can, um, you know, suffer the consequences, but they're going to keep their kids well away from it. Um, But unfortunately, as you as you said, you know, I think that's that's not possible. And even with the best intentions, it's great that we have all these sort of cyber, you know, my daughter, for example, she's 10. She's already had a cyberbullying class at school. Mm. But my worry Mm. is that there's something about social media. In fact, it's it's this is what it's supposed to do, isn't it? That whips you up into such a state um, that that even if you know all that stuff, you're you're not you're somehow unable to use your your sort of rational brain in that moment, which is why we're seeing more and more of these of these really appalling cases. Absolutely, because when you're in the eye of the storm and it doesn't matter if you're a high profile person, if you're a teenager being bullied at school and all of your classmates are turning on you, you feel like it's the only thing that matters. You feel like everyone in the world is talking about your little social media issue. Of course, they're not. But you're right. That's how the apps make you feel. And I think, Celia, where the social media companies should feel ashamed is that they make so much money, so much money. They have very low overheads, hardly any staff, and they want to keep it that way, Whereas actually what they genuinely need is an army of staff who can deal with moderation issues. Because that's the problem, Celia. When one of these things happen, if you're a parent, I mean, you try and get through to someone at Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you know, to get some revenge porn or whatever it happens to be taken down. It's really difficult. 
It's really difficult. And as, as you pointed out with this particular case, most of, you know, most of the apps that Mia was on have now disappeared. You know, it's impossible to get any any of the conversations that happened in the in the hours before this poor girl's death. Um, and and if you're a parent and you just want to know what was it that tipped you over the edge, um, I, I just hope that they are able to find out at some point this week. I know. Well, I know social media company uh, in 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 cases even involving the police uh, refuse to hand over information because, of course, they're not they're not operating in the UK. And I think they should really have a good hard look at themselves. So, I mean, what do you do in your own personal situation, Celia? Because actually at 10 years old, I mean, lots of especially young girls now are all over TikTok. I mean, I'm very opposed to it, but I have friends, kids who who got their first TikTok account when they yeah. were five years old. I know. I mean, it's, it's hard because you, you never want to judge other parents because people, you know, do whatever, whatever they feel is right. For me, um, I've seen how in love my husband is with social media and, um, <laughs> and, the, and the addiction he has to it. And I, I really don't want, I mean, I do think it is, it is an addiction. I, I, I don't really suffer from no, it. I'm I on think Instagram, it I'm in his camp uh, and it's not a good thing. Yeah, I know you are. But uh, but I think that uh, I, I know that for some people it can be um, it can be a black hole that you end up going. And I think particularly for girls, it really homes in on insecurities um, mm. in a way that uh, I'm sure it affects boys, too. But but statistics have shown it's particularly harmful to young girls um, who, when they're growing up and their, their bodies are changing, are, are very, very f- fragile um, and particularly susceptible to, you know, a, a negative comment, which one person might, which might not even qualify as bullying. But if it sort of gets whipped up, um, could seem that way. No, it's absolutely fascinating stuff, very disturbing. Of course, we don't want there to be more Mia's. A first look at tomorrow's newspaper from pages coming up. But first, Big Witty Style and Boris continue to get back to important business today as he revealed a renewed right to buy scheme during a major housing speech in Blackpool. But the question remains whether the treacherous Tory rebels are prepared to get back to the business of supporting their prime minister and party by ending the civil war that's prevented the government from focusing on real issues like the cost of living crisis. Anne Whittakim is a former Tory minister who has been highly critical of Boris in the past and even left the party over Brexit. But she believes it is now imperative for the country that Boris battles on. So, Anne, um, continuing this blue on blue Westminster psychodrama, do you think that only makes the chances of Keir Starmer becoming prime minister more likely. As I said in my Express column yesterday, very good column every Wednesday. Uh, I always read it, Anne. I always read it. Don't you get me wrong. (laughs) Um, As I said yesterday, you know, Labour doesn't doesn't have to do anything at the moment. Kirstama doesn't have to oppose. He just has to sit and watch uh, while the party opposite just disintegrates in in a civil war. Uh, And uh, if that's what they want, uh, if the Tories at Westminster don't care if they lose the next election, if they really want uh, a socialist, and it will be a socialist government, if that's what they want, OK, uh, carry on as they are now. The option is to say they'll move on, they'll accept the result of that vote, 
uh, and that they will become a, which they certainly haven't been for at least a year, uh, a cohesive fighting force uh, that will not only take on the opposition, because they're so feeble, actually, it doesn't require much taking on, uh, but that they will take on the big issues facing the country and persuade the country that they have at least some. No party's got all the answers, but at least some of the answers. Their choice, that's all I'm saying. Their choice, and the more that people like Jeremy Hunt go on television uh, and speak ill of the leader, and the more that they feed the media with all these headlines, the more they feed the media with anti-Boris comment, uh, the more likely it is they're going to lose the next election. And we hear about MPs being worried about holding on to their seats with Boris. Um, Try holding on to their seats with a civil war over the next two years. Well, indeed. And, and I thought the whole point of the 1922 committee rules were that there can't be another confidence vote for 12 months because yep. Boris has won. The party should unite. But it seems all of a sudden like there's whispers, oh, maybe the rules can be changed. Do they not understand that the whole point is that you can't use confidence votes as a way to get at a leader over time? You have your opportunity if you lose, you have to shut up for a year. Well, not only do they not get that, but what they don't get is that if there were to be a rule change and another confidence vote, then by definition, all this um, internal strife is going to go on and it's going to go on uh, for months uh, if that is what they try and do. They can't, of course, just change the rules. There has to be a vote of the entire 1922 committee. That's all the backbenchers. Uh, there has to be a vote. Uh, and um, so that would have to be organised. Uh, then if they did decide to change the rules to six months or something, we then spend six months locked in this same argument over Boris's leadership, not able to get on and do anything. And, you know, it's all very well to blame the media. And, yes, the media is very heavily biased. but, but Who's feeding them yeah. the stuff with which to exhibit their bias? The Tory party. I've seen it before, Dan. I saw it in the major years when we had wrangling and, and really serious wrangling with a not Boris's large majority, but with a very small majority. And it damaged us so much that there was a record Labour landslide at the next election. Now, I think Labour would have won anyway because we'd been in four terms, people wanted a change, but they needn't have won by that sort of margin. We, the party, gave that to them, and now they're doing exactly the same again. Very good advice from Anne Whittakim, a woman who has been there before. Anne, thank you so much. Dan Wilson here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wilson tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.